Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for that reminder that indeed we're almost home, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Father, we come to worship you this morning, and of course we come to hear a word from you. So we pray, Lord, that uh, through your spirit you may talk to us and you may edify us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago I told you one thing that I uh, like to do um, occasionally is to look at a passage that it doesn't seem as clear as other passages in the Bible. So, you know, there are passages in the Bible that are pretty clear, that's easy to, un- easy to understand. There are others that, you know, require a little bit of work. And oftentimes, uh, these difficult passages uh, are presented to us, and maybe we don't know how to answer them, uh, and so, it, you know, they block us off. I don't know what to say because these passage is a bit difficult for me. And so today we're going to look at one such passage. And so today's message is more of a study than I would say a sermon, but uh, I like to do this because it's important that we understand God's Word. Now, um, a, few, a, a number of years ago, um, you may, some of you may know this, this actually was in 2009, so it's been already a, a while, but there was a report that came in the uh, U.S. News, and it was titled, 11 Habits That Will Help You Live to 100. How many of you like to live to 100? Well, I like to live eternally, obviously, and God's going to make that happen. But while I'm here, I like to live to 100. And, but I don't want to be sick with you know, oxygen, you know, a cannula, and, you know, carrying an oxygen tank. That's not the kind of life I want to live. I want to live to 100 and be healthy, don't you? So they talked about this, and, and one of the things that they found about one step to live to 100 is to live like a Seventh-day Adventist. I don't know if you were familiar with this, but this is, uh, was interesting. And, uh, the, the, the article said Americans who define themselves as Seventh-day Adventists have an average life expectancy of 89, about a decade longer than the average American. One of the basic tenets of the religion is that it is important to cherish the body that is on loan from God, which means no smoking, alcohol abuse, or overindulging in sweets. Followers typically stick to a vegetarian diet based on fruits, uh, vegetables, beans, and nuts, and get plenty of exercise. And so maybe um, as, you, as you read this, you're thinking, well, maybe, you know, I need to do a better job than that because maybe I'm not doing all that. I mean, I was talking to, to Donna earlier, and, you know, <laughs> sweets, that's, that's my weakness. And I, you know, I'm working on that, and I pray for me for that. But, you know, this is very good, good news. You know, the fact that the, the, our health tenets, you know, the, what we call the health message is something that's being noticed by other people, right? And those Adventists, you know, are living longer lives, are living healthier lives because of the things they believe uh, as part of that health message, of course, that we find in Scripture. Now, a few weeks ago, some of you may remember, we, we participated of this, of this health and wellness seminar uh, uh, by uh, Faith for Today and, and Roy Ice, Indestructible, right? And, and, and one of the things that uh, Roy Ice talked about was this issue of blue zones. He talked about blue zones. You said, well, what, what, is, what are blue zones? Well, researchers have identified common lifestyle habits across the geographic regions of the world where people live the longest. Well, this is why they call it blue zones. Uh, that might explain the higher proportion of people living longer, happier, 
and healthier lives in these populations. And so uh, uh, there are things that people are doing that live in these this so-called blue zones that are allowing them to be healthier, to live longer lives. And, and so the idea uh, that Roy Ives was talking about is for us to do some of those things so that we too could live longer lives. And there is uh, one of those blue zones, it's found here in North America, and it's, it's in Loma Linda, California. Loma Linda, California, and uh, researcher Don Butner uh, said that, he, he said, I found that Seventh-day Adventists lived between 7 and 11 years longer than people in its North American counterparts. Uh, Butner tells NBC News Better, the highest concentration of them is um, in, in or around Southern California, specifically Loma Linda, I qualified it as a blue zone, namely because they were verifiably the longest-lived Americans given available data in, uh, in 2005. So it's been a while. But the point is, in Loma Linda, California, it's a, it's, uh, it's a blue zone. And, and as you know, Loma Linda, California is a place where there is a heavy presence of Seventh-day Adventists. Loma Linda University, Loma Linda ho uh, uh, Hospital, a medical center. So... Things are happening, they are, they are doing these things, and of course, they're living longer and happier lives. Wouldn't it be awesome if Nashville, Tennessee became a blue zone? Because of the things that we're doing, because of the principles that we're following, uh, health principles in Scripture. But now, when, when you ask the average you know, Christian, non-Adventist, about what they know about Adventists, one of the things that they may say is, well, those are the people that don't eat pork, right? You know, for, in general, we're known for, uh, um, you know, what we don't do, what we don't eat in regards to these, uh, um, these health principles. And of course, as you know, uh, there's a lot of disagreement with that. Oh, how is it that, that, that you can, can uh, why don't you eat these things? Uh, uh, don't, aren't you taking things to the extreme? And so, uh, uh, you know, people are wondering about this, and they'll say, isn't that the Old Testament stuff? I mean, didn't Jesus cleanse all foods? Doesn't he cleanse all animals? I mean, that's the, 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 uh, the thought that many people have. Yeah, Jesus cleansed all animals, and if he cleansed all animals, the Bible says so. Why is it that you are taking these things to the extreme? Why are you so dogmatic about that? Let's open our Bibles. Let's go to our scripture reading. Um, Carl read it earlier. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. And you see it on the screen as well. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter in his heart, but his stomach, and it is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. So notice I think that, you know, the point of that is that last part of verse 19. So Jesus explains, you know, what happens, you know, you eat something, this is what happens, it enters your stomach, and, thus, and ends saying, thus purifying all foods. Now, notice that the word thus is in italics, and 
I've shared this with you before. When you, when you see a word in italics in your English translation, it means that that word in particular was not found in the original manuscript. So the translators, you know, based on context and the syntax, they added the word that they thought would fit there. But we can't escape the fact that it says there, thus purifying all foods. I think that can't be any clearer. But, you know, and so you, you may wonder, I mean, uh, we may ask ourselves, could we be wrong? Because it says it clearly that all foods are pure. All foods have been purified. Could it be that we, we can start eating anything and everything we want because according to this passage, Jesus purified all foods? If, and depending on which version of the Bible you may have, it, it can be even clearer. Uh, for example, the New International Version says it this way, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, what did the Jesus do? It says, Jesus declared all foods clean. That's even clearer than the New King James Version. The New American Standard Bible says it this way, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. So there it is. We can end the sermon today and leave with, with the assurance that if we choose to eat anything and everything we want, we're okay because the Bible says clearly that Jesus cleansed all foods. Or did he? Did he do that? You know, uh, uh, um, could, it could be that we're wrong. We could start eating anything that we want. So, so the question that we need to ask today is, what does the Bible say? Well, when we look at the Bible in general, what does the Bible say about the distinction between clean and unclean? Because uh, the title of our message is The Battle Between Clean and Unclean. So what we're going to look at is that. We're going to study what the Bible says about this issue of clean and unclean. Now, in order for us to understand this issue of the distinction between clean and unclean, we need to go to the Old Testament because, of course, it is in the Old Testament where this distinction is first mentioned. Now, when you think about clean and unclean animals, your mind goes to where immediately? Leviticus chapter 11, right? Leviticus chapter 11, also Deuteronomy 14. These are two chapters that speak specifically about that, but Leviticus 11 is one that speaks the most about this distinction between clean and unclean. And what we find in those two chapters, of course, uh, the Bible doesn't provi provide an all-exhaustive list of all the animals that are clean and all the animals that are unclean. What we read there is that God gives them, uh, uh, the Israelites, uh, ways to identify a clean animal and thus identify an unclean animal. And then he does provide a number of examples of animals. But in general, it's not an all-exhaustive list. It's just this is what we read there. But the question that must be asked is, are these dietary instructions, these food instructions, are they part of a universal law? Are they part of a universal moral imperative that, that is applicable to everybody? Or are these instructions that God gave there, are they limited in time and scope to the children of Israel? That's what we need to find out. Are they limited? It was, was it just for the Israelites? These are the things that they had to do and only they? Or are these uh, 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 guidelines we read in Leviticus, are they part of this universal law that is applicable to everybody at all times and in all places? 
and foundational to the discussion of this clean and unclean distinction is the fact that the Old Testament talks about two kinds or two types of uncleanliness. There's two types of uncleanliness that we find uh, in the Old Testament. The first one, or rather, there's one type. Notice it says it is permanent. One kind of uncleanness or cleanliness is permanent, non-ritual, non-cultic, and non-ceremonial in nature and purpose. So one that it is permanent. It's not ceremonial in nature. And then the other type, it is distinctive ritual, cultic, and ceremonial in nature and design. So one is, uh, is permanent, that is, that because it's permanent, it's non-ceremonial in nature, and then one is ceremonial in nature. Those are the two kinds of, of uncleanliness that we read about in the Bible, in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus. Now, when we think about the book of Leviticus, always, most of the time, we think, well, these are, in the book of Leviticus, we read about all those ceremonial laws, all those things that pertain to the children of Israel. And we read about that truth. But in the book of Leviticus, it contains both ceremonial laws and it also contains moral universal laws. So we read about, yes, things that are particular to the children of Israel in the book of Leviticus. But we also read about moral universal imperatives that applies to all people at all times. That's important that we think about that because most people don't know that. Most people just think, oh, Leviticus, ceremonial laws. But Leviticus does talk about moral universal laws. And it has to be concluded on the basis of the entire Bible witness that there is a general cleanness. Notice this. There is a general cleanness that is innate to all human beings and things and most animals. Innately clean. Things that are innately or inherently clean. Now, under certain circumstances, that which inherently, it is inherently clean can become unclean. You see that? You are clean, something is clean, a person is clean, but under certain circumstances, that clean person or clean thing or clean animal can become unclean. This uncleanliness thus acquired calls for a removal of the uncleanliness by some sort of ceremony. They had to do some kind of ritual, uh, some kind of cultic ritual in order to remove the uncleanliness because it was acquired uncleanliness. For example, in the case of leprosy. A person, a person was clean, but became diseased, became a leper. That person now is considered unclean because it's a leper. And even when the leprosy was gone, they had to follow certain rituals. They had to go to a priest. They had to be declared clean. They had to go through some bathing and washing and certain sacrifices so that they could be declared uh, clean again. You understand me? You're with me? This is a kind of, 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 of acquired uncleanliness. So notice... The acquired uncleanliness demands some sort of ritual or cultic action or a combination of actions at the time through which the uncleanliness can be ceremonially removed and the cleanliness restored. That's the first one. So this kind of acquired uncleanliness is ritual, is cultic, is ceremonial in nature, and it is part of what we know as the ceremonial law. That ceremonial law that was applied or, or, or specific to the children of Israel. But now let's look at the next kind of uncleanliness, the one that is not acquired, and thus it is not ritualistic or ceremonial in nature. This uncleanliness can be said to be innate or inherent to certain animals alone. 
Now, these animals are called unclean in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They are unclean in themselves because God has declared them to be unclean, specifically unclean. God did this. So the innate, notice the innate, inherent, or designated uncleanness is an uncleanness which cannot be removed by any ritual or cultic activity specified in the ceremonial law. So you see there's the two kinds of uncleanness. One that is acquired by a person or something that was previously clean. It becomes unclean. There's something that needs to be done to make it clean again. The other one is an uncleanness that is permanent. It was declared by God, and therefore you can't do anything about it. So this demonstrates that the uncleanness of animals designated unclean or detestable is of a different origin and nature and purpose. It's of a different origin because it's because God declared it that way. He declared it unclean. The ritual and cultic uncleanliness is acquired by someone or something which was not previously unclean. Therefore, there needs to be something done to make it clean again. But the innate or inherent uncleanliness, to the contrary, is permanent and unremovable. It is not part of the ceremonial law, and it is divinely designated unclean for food purposes. God declared it that way. All right, let's review this before, before I move on, because I want you to understand these concepts. Number one, there is a ritual cultic uncleanliness, one that is acquired by something or someone that was previously clean, and it is in need of removal by some sort of ritual or some sort of a, a ceremony, and again, it's prescribed in the ceremonial law. There is, to the, uh, the contrast, by contrast, a non-ritual, non-cultic uncleanliness, which is acquired, or rather, which is not acquired. It is innate and inherent to those creatures designated by God to be unclean, and therefore, it is not ceremonial in nature and purpose. Inherent uncleanliness cannot be removed. It is permanent. There is no action provided in the ceremonial law by which it could be cleaned because there's a different origin Nature and purpose, God declared it unclean. Okay? Now, where, when, when did, did the, according to the Bible, when do we read about, when do we read about the first time about this distinction between clean and unclean? Do we read about it for the first time in the book of Leviticus? No, right? Because we read about it in the, in the story of Noah. Remember the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 7, verses uh, uh, 2 to 8 there. It, it tells us about this distinction. You know the story. God was going to send the flood. He tells Noah to build an ark. And then at the appropriate time, he is to bring seven of the clean animals into the ark and two of the unclean animals. And so notice, by then, God had already made this distinction about clean and unclean. And it's clear that Noah was familiar with it. Because God tells Noah what to do. So clearly he was familiar with what a clean animal was and what an unclean animal was. Way before the children of Israel had, had, had left Egypt and were in the desert and these uh, uh, dietary regulations were given. Because of course we know that Noah uh, uh, you know, um, had sacrificed to God and only clean animals were sacrificed to God. And of course at some point he was going to run out of vegetables and so he had to eat, and his family had to eat, and it was the clean animals that they would eat. But now, again, this happened before the children of Israel. In fact, Genesis 1 through 11 
is what's called foundation. These, these, these chapters in Genesis um, are not specific to the children of Israel, but are sort of foundational to the history of the world. Verses chapters 1 to 11. Then after chapter 12, then we, we have the story of, of Abraham, and, and it moves specifically to the story of, the, of God's people. But chapters 1 through 11 are foundational for humanity. And the story of Noah is found within those chapters. So it is universal in nature. These concepts... Of, these, of clean and unclean are known before Israel came into existence, and therefore it's applicable to all humankind in general. And this is where it starts, not in Leviticus. But now you may wonder, why did God make these distinctions? Why did God designate some animals clean, and why did he designate some animals unclean? Why did he do that? Well, there are a number of explanations about this, and the first one has to do with the connection or association of these unclean animals with pagan religions. In other words, they, uh, the explanation goes that God made these designations, these animals unclean, because pagans would sacrifice those animals to their pagan gods. And because they sacrificed them to their pagan gods, God said, well, you know, the, these, these people are using them as sacrifices, therefore you will not eat them. They are unclean because of this. Okay? That's the explanation. However, the reality is that um, uh, the, the, not every unclean animal was used as a sacrifice by pagan religions. And more importantly, there were some clean animals that were used as sacrifices. You see there, uh, uh, for example, the, the bull, the cow, the ram, the goat, some un, a clean fish were also used by the pagans in their sacrifices to their pagan gods. So clearly then, if that was the reason, if the reason that God made these distinctions of clean versus unclean was because they, 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 the pagans used them, then we, wouldn't have, we couldn't eat cow, we couldn't eat bull and, 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 and those animals that are considered clean. So clearly this explanation doesn't hold any water. It doesn't have a leg to stand on, so to speak. Now, one of the oldest explanations has to do with hygiene. Hygiene. The fact that, you know, God made these, um, this, um, these uh, distinctions because these animals were good for your health. Right? And, and, and by the way, that is the, that is the explanation that we Seventh-day Adventists hold on to, Right? We don't eat these things because God, who created us and who created these animals, knows what's good for us and what's not. And so he said, no, you know, I don't want you to eat these things because these things are going to be bad for you. I want you to be healthy people. And, and, and this is what we believe today, don't we? This is why we follow these guidelines, because God wants us to be healthy people. However, there's always criticism. There are those who say, no, that can't be it. That can't be it because there's nothing in the Bible that says that God made these or that designated these animals unclean because they're bad for you. You know, the Bible doesn't say, well, don't eat pork because it's bad for your cardiovascular health. The Bible doesn't say that, does it? You know, it, it, the fact of the matter is that. You know, we just take it for granted. We know that God knows everything. He knows uh, our lives. He knows our bodies. He knows the, the animals that he created. And he said, he, you know, it's bad for you. Now, some people, again, object to this because, uh, again, the Old Testament doesn't give any hint of the motive cause. Now, let me ask you a question. Does God always explain himself? 
We, we wish he explained himself, but he doesn't always explain himself. He doesn't always give a reason why he makes a decision, does he? Sometimes we wish he did, right? But again, the criticism is because God doesn't say specifically they're bad for your health. That can't be the reason. But when we look at the Hebrew sentence structure, we realize that as far as laws, God doesn't always do that. God doesn't always say what he says or what, what, what's the reason for it. In fact, um, nowhere in the Bible there's an indication that there, because of the lack of the motive clause, that all, automatically um, throws away the law. In other words, it doesn't say, well, if God doesn't explain himself, then I don't have to follow that law. The Bible doesn't say that. We, uh, obviously, we need to have, uh, uh, develop a trust in God that whatever he says we'll do, he doesn't have to say why. God said it, I'll do it. That's the way it should be, right? So again, you know, this criticism really doesn't hold any water either. So, so this, this whole issue of health and hygiene, that's obviously a, a good reason why um, God made these designations of clean versus unclean, and this is why we do it today. This is why we follow these guidelines. However, I would say that the most important reason why God made these distinctions is the issue of holiness. God wants us to be holy people. And it's interesting that when we read, uh, we start reading Leviticus 11, of course, we read about the guidelines. God describes, all right, this is a clean animal, this is the unclean animal. He gives how to identify it. But as he closes the chapter, he gives us the reason why he made these distinctions. Notice verses 44 and 45. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be what? You shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So the reason, the primary reason God made these distinctions is because he wants us to be holy. Now what does holy mean? We've talked about that before. To be holy means to be what? Does it mean to be perfect? It means that God has separated us, right? God has set us apart to be special people, to stand out. And this is why the health message is so important. This is why, like, these reports from U.S. News and, and the issue of the Blue Zones are important, because it highlights an important fact. The, the, these Adventists are doing something. They're healthier. What are they doing? They're standing out. And, that, and as we stand out, of course, the health message is the entering wedge to the gospel. It gives us an opportunity to, to witness to somebody because now they're interested. What is it that you're doing that makes you healthy? In other words, we're standing out. We're different than the world, right? And this is what God wants. God wants us to be holy. He wants to be separate. He wants us to be distinct. And, and the fringe benefit of that is we're healthier than other people. Aren't you, aren't you glad God wants you to be healthy? And he's provided the principles for you to be healthy. And so we see here in the Old Testament that the, the, the origin of, of this distinction between clean and unclean has nothing to do with just the children of Israel. It was done from day one. It was from the day one. Why? Because God wants us to be healthy. He wants us to be holy people. And these, is, these are part of the universal moral imperatives. In other words, it's just applicable for everybody. God did not want just the children of Israel to be healthy. He wants you and me to be healthy, right? And he's provided these guidelines. Okay, but now we need to go back to Mark seven nineteen. What about Mark seven nineteen? What about this? I mean, 
Didn't Jesus say he cleansed all foods? I mean, it says it right there. It says it right there. Some people will say, well, hold on. Okay, they'll say, well, all right, Pastor, I understand what you're saying. We see this concept of clean versus unclean in the Old Testament. Yes, we, we know that God wants us to be healthy. Yes, he gave these rules for, for people to be healthy and holy. And yes, they, they, were, they were not just for the children of Israel, they were for everybody. But it seems clear that when Jesus comes into the picture, he changes things. When we come to the New Testament, there is a difference. And we know there's a difference because we read about it, and it says that Jesus made all foods clean. That's what we read. But now, sometimes we got to use certain logic about these things. Because think about it. God created us. He created these animals that are considered unclean, that he designated unclean because they're bad for your health. Did Jesus all of a sudden snap his finger and make these animals healthy? Of course not. Because today, of course, medical science tells us that these animals that were designated unclean for, for, by Jesus, they're bad for your health. Medical science proves that today. So if Jesus did something to make these animals clean, it didn't work. Because they're, they're still bad for you. Now, of course, the argument can be made that really every meat these days is probably, not, it's probably something we should stay away from, right? You, know, you remember the, the allowing uh, the, um, con, the cons, um, eating uh, clean animals is part of what's called the permitted diet. But the, the diet that, is, that God gave is a vegetarian one. You know? That is the, 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 the right diet for us human beings. And of course, you know, we can all work on that. But the eating clean animals was a permitted diet. Still, the fact of the matter is, what was bad back then for the children of Israel is bad for us today. Okay? So that's, the, you know, logic will tell us that. But now... When we think of Mark 7, 19, we read that it says clearly Jesus cleansed all foods. Uh, Bible scholars admit that this is a problematic text for these Bible scholars because the Greek clause is unclear and it could be interpreted in different ways. But that may not mean anything to you. You're not a Bible scholar, maybe. Yes, you well, okay, that's what they say, but that doesn't mean anything to me. So how does one determine what the meaning of a Bible text. How does one determine the meaning of a Bible text? I've said it many times. Context. Context, context, context will tell us how to uh, 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 interpret a Bible text. So Mark 7.19 here, friends, uh, appears in the larger context of the controversy of Jesus regarding rabbinic food regulations. This is, in essence, what's happening when you read the entire chapter. Remember what I've told you, in order for you to understand context, you need to read the verses before, the verses after. Sometimes you have to read the entire chapter so that you understand what's going on. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about, uh, uh, these rabbinic food regulations. Now, uh, one thing that is important for us to understand, many people don't understand this, but when we come to foods in general, this term foods, for a Jew... Because remember, Jesus is talking to who? He's talking to the Jewish people, the, the Jewish leaders, the disciples are there. So he's talking to Jews. For a Jew, these animals that God declared unclean back in day one do not come under the umbrella of what is known as foods. So chicken, 
Let's just focus on the meats. So chicken is a clean animal, right? The lamb, you know, they ate lamb back then. That's a clean animal. So that would come under the food groups, right? But if you told them pork or shrimp or lobster or catfish, that kind of thing, for a Jew, that's not considered a food. That doesn't come under the food groups. Now, for us, it's different because we go to Walmart and we find these things and, and, and people eat them. So we think when we think about foods, even though we may not eat those foods, they're still foods. They're just we don't eat them. But a Jew would not define that as food. A Jew would not define that as food. And so for them, when, when, when Jesus cleansed all foods, that's not what this, uh, Mark is talking about. Because for them, unclean animals were not considered part of the food groups. Okay? So notice that Mark 7, two, uh, verses 2 to 5, uh, clearly indicates that the issue is the tradition of the elders. The tradition of who? This is what's going on in the context. Notice um, uh, verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they uh, wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. So this is what's going on. In fact, when you start reading the chapter, you realize that uh, the, the Jewish leaders were criticizing Jesus and the disciples because they not, did not wash their hands before they ate. Now, again, this, this does not have anything to do with hygiene. I mean, they weren't criticizing them because they were eating with dirty hands. What they were criticizing them was because they did not wash their hands in a specific way according to the tradition of the elders. And this is why they were criticizing Jesus and the disciples. You see, what, what they believed back then, part of the tradition is that if a Jew ate a food, a clean animal, so let's just say they were eating lamb. Okay, a clean a animal is a clean, a lamb is a clean animal. If they did not wash their hands in the specific way that the tradition of the elders demanded, that made that lamb unclean, even though it was a clean animal. Why? Because they did not wash their hands in a specific way. And so this is in, in con- the context that's happening in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 has nothing to do with food. Mark chapter 7 has to do with what Jesus is, is making this criticism against the traditions of men. He upholds the law and contrasts it with the tradition of men. Notice verse 8. Verse 8 says, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. So this is the kind of thing they did. This is the kind of thing they did. Jesus is not anti-divine law. He's anti-human tradition. And so when we think about the entire chapter, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, that's the proper context of verse 19. That's the proper uh, context of verse 19. Uh, The debate in Mark chapter 7 is against the traditions of men, the rabbinic purity laws that prescribe how hands were to be washed before eating so that the person eating it would not become undefiled. They would, that would make the clean animal unclean. And when, so Mark, when Mark says, thus Jesus declared all foods unclean, he's not making a general statement that everything that was considered unclean, now it's clean. What he's, those foods that he's talking about are those foods that in a Jew's mind became unclean because they didn't wash their hands. And those are the foods that he's talking about. Because remember, unclean foods don't come under the umbrella for a Jew. And we need to understand that when we read Mark chapter 7. Are you with me? But now, let's just say for the sake of argument that I'm wrong about everything I just said. 
Yeah, yeah, God made these distinctions in the Old Testament, but it's clear that when Jesus comes to the picture, he throws that all away. He throws away these distinctions on clean and clean, and all foods are clean from now on. We can start eating anything. Let's just say that, that I'm wrong about all that, that I said. Now, when Jesus said this, you know, when he was talking to these religious leaders, the disciples are there. And Mark says clearly, yes. He, he, by this, Jesus declared all foods unclean. The disciples would know this, wouldn't they? They're right there with him. The disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. If Jesus cleanses all foods, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to start eating them. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 we can make a safe conclusion that that's what they would do. They, he's the Messiah. He, he threw away those distinctions, so now I can eat anything I want. But did they? We know that's not what happened. Because several years later, several years later, Jesus had died, he resurrected, he went back to heaven. The, the early church, it's already starting. Several years later, the apostle Peter has an experience um, when he's uh, at the roof of Simon the Tanner. Okay? He's up there, he's waiting for lunch. Notice uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 14. This is the experience of Peter. Again, years later after uh, this uh, incident in Mark chapter 7. It says, The next day, as they went out on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were made ready, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven open, an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all, four, uh, all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter, uh, but Peter said, Not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So notice this incident happened several years after the incident of Mark, where Mark says Jesus declared all foods clean. Now again, we came to the conclusion that if indeed Jesus cleansed all foods and removed the distinction, the disciples being there, they would start eating anything and everything they wanted. But if that's the case, if indeed Jesus cleansed all foods, Peter really didn't understand that. Peter didn't follow through. Because several years later, when God tells them, eat from what he sees, clearly were unclean animals in that vision, what does he say? No, 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 Lord. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So in Peter's mind, that distinction is still there. And he had not eaten anything that was considered unclean. So clearly, Peter understood the context of Mark chapter 7. He understood what Jesus was talking about. He understood that, that Mark 7 had nothing to do with food. In fact, he, later on, he understands the reason why God gives him this, lesson, uh, this vision in verse 28. It says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep, uh, to keep company with or go to another of an, um, one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So know the story uh, uh, in, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is a Roman centurion, a Gentile, and he has a vision, and in this vision, God tells him to send for Peter because Peter's going to come back and preach the gospel to him. Now, for a Jew to go to the house of a, a Gentile was a big no-no. If they did that, 
the Jew would become unclean. This would be one of those acquired uncleanliness, right? If, if indeed Peter went and had contact with a, with a Gentile, he would become unclean. And so he had to do all those ceremonies to be cleansed again. Okay? But this is what's happening in the context. And of course, uh, uh, as the men go to get Peter in the house of Simon, God tells them, listen, these men are going to you know, pick you up. Go with them. And he goes to the house of Cornelius, and there he, he preaches the gospel to them. And this is where he explains this. He understood that what God was telling him had nothing to do with food, that, that the, distinction, the distinction between clean and unclean animals removed. This had to do with people. This had to do with the fact that God wanted the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. And, of course, Peter still had that mindset that a Gentile was, was unclean, and that therefore I, I, I didn't have to contact them. They had no right to the gospel. And so God is starting to remove that obstacle. He tells Peter about it. And, you know, again, context is so important. I have, I have heard sermons by Christian pastors on this story, and they use it. See, we can eat everything we want. It says it right there, but they don't keep on reading. When we go to chapter 11 of the book of Acts, we know that because Peter went into the house of a Gentile, he got himself into a little bit of hot water, got himself into trouble, and so he had to go to the, Jewish, to the, to the religious the church leaders to explain himself. He said, listen, this is what happened. I had this vision. I went to the house. God wants us to preach to the Gentiles. He, he explains himself in chapter 11. Context, context, context. So notice the whole uh, uh, vision or issue in Acts chapter 10 and 11 is not about unclean and unclean, clean and unclean food, but the problem of association with the Gentiles. But this story highlights the fact that clearly what Jesus did in Mark chapter 7 was not a general statement of cleaning, unclean, uh, cleaning everything, removing the obstacles, removing the distinction. It had to do with the tradition of the elders. Peter understood that, and we see this clearly in this story. In this story. Context, really. This is why studying the Bible in context is so great, because God tells us exactly what this means. So, really, to sum up, we looked at the reasons why God made these distinctions. We, of course, believe God wants us to be holy. We, 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 we subscribe to this uh, concept that God wants us to be holy. This is why we do this, uh, or healthy, I should say. But holiness is the supreme reason why God established these dietary regulations. Do you think God still wants us to be holy? Yes, he still wants us to be holy. And so he calls us to honor him with the choices that we make about the things we put in our body. Now again, we're highlighting this issue of clean versus unclean, but we know that there's much more to that, right? As we saw from the report of U.S. World, U.S. News, the issue of sweets and all those things, we need to do a better job with that. It's not just that, oh, I don't eat pork, but I overindulge in sweets. We're not really doing anything. But the point is, God wants us to be holy people. He wants us to stand out so that provides a way to reaching others with the gospel. And the fringe benefit is that we will be healthy. Our choice should be what Paul said in Mark, or rather in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Amen? Is that your desire today? Do it all for the glory of God. Be holy people, be healthy people, and God will be glorified in our midst. He leads us. Amen? And so I hope that this has been helpful. Again, the, the issue of difficult passages, you know, if you're presented with this passage before, now you know, okay, well, I understand exactly what this passage is saying, and I can explain it to somebody. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church, 
We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.